0: From Santa Barbara, California, the Timeless Voyager series, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers, psychic phenomena and the unexplained, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups, alternative health care, new technologies. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Timeless Voyagers series. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes. Today's guest returns with an exciting follow-up to our last program regarding time travel. Andrew DiBiago is the American lawyer, writer, public speaker, media personality, was an independent candidate for president of the United States in 2016. He's best known, though, for serving as a U.S. chrononaut in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel and Project Mars throughout the beginnings of interdimensional travel. Now today, we're going to spend most of our interview time talking about the chronovisor, which we talked a little bit about in our last interview. I promised Andrew that we would spend as much time as needed to cover the subject. Welcome to the show, Andrew.
1: Thank you for having me, Bruce. I'm ready to go.
0: So let's see. We left off with so many different things in the last interview. But as I said a moment ago, you had asked me if we could spend the majority of our time talking about the coronavirus. So why don't you start where you think would be a good place to start and explain to our viewers and listeners what that word or term means?
1: Yeah, I think this is a critical issue in the truth movement. And that is in telling the true story about what our great country has accomplished. We know that what's been called the deep state, which I define as the intelligence community engaged in abuses of power has tried to confuse science fiction for science fact. And when I came forward now almost 20 years ago and began talking about the eight forms, the eight modalities of time travel that I was exposed to in DARPA's project Pegasus beginning around 1967, 68, I noticed that shortly after I talked about the chronovisor or chronovision, which was a major aspect of what Project Pegasus was doing. There was an eff- effort to not reveal or discuss any further what Project Pegasus, an actual program had done with the crowd advisor, but substitute the notion of a project looking glass. And I thought, well, how clever, they didn't reveal to, what I was revealing, which is that it was not just a looking glass, Sure, it was a looking glass if you looked at the hologram of the chronovisor, and you could see into the past, and then later, of course, the future. But when that hologram was brought in around us, we were time traveling. We went to that location. I mean, I was sent to Ford's Theater who to see who shot President Lincoln eight times in the summer of 1971. So we cannot talk about chronovision in terms of a looking glass. It was a time machine, and I think they were quite surprised. In fact, when they tried that, and they realized, "My God, the very person that we thought was going to be inside, looking into the into the, into the past, is in fact going there." And um, so, I think it's an important aspect to distinguish about really what I have revealed and and what the value of it is.
0: So basically, now. I just want to interrupt. Basically, what you're saying is that the idea was to view. And much to their surprise, they found that you could actually go there. Is that correct? Yes. I think originally they thought, well, great. We have this hologram in which we're viewing a past
1: event. But then perhaps even accidentally, they thought, well, what's going to happen when we bring that down around a human being? What happens? And it wasn't just a matter of us seeing the past We were going there. In fact, if we were in for more than 15 minutes, a so-called density effect would take hold that required them to insert a portal in the hologram to pull us back out. So make no mistake, the chronovisor was a time travel device.
0: Now, you actually uh, mentioned that in the last show, and I found that interesting because you said that if you were there too long, and now I might be wrong when I say it this way, but you could get stuck there?
1: Well, no, that's, that's entirely accurate. We, if the density effect occurred because we were in that hologram for 15 minutes or more, we were literally stuck there in the past. And in fact, if the hologram had collapsed at that point, we would have been there forever. In other words, it was a means to get to the past. And so that's one of the reasons they were involving kids, because we were smaller and there would be less of a chance that the hologram would collapse after we had been brought via hologram to a past time and place. Yeah,
0: I remember that you had mentioned that idea that uh, the reason that they didn't use adults was because the, the children... Uh, I guess because of their mass, maybe I don't know if that's correct, but somehow that had a major effect on the collapsing of it. If it if it wasn't if they weren't careful,
1: yes. Every aspect of what a human being causes in a local environment. What do they have? They have the sound of their voice, a cough, a sneeze, a laugh, the reverberation of their footfall. They found that with adults, the hologram produced by putting an electromagnetic signal through an eight-sided bismuth crystal would collapse. But with either children or diminutive adults, it would not, at least it was less less likely to do so. Mm. Now, they decided to use us rather than diminutive adults because we were trainees. We were time-space cadets, if you will. Mm. And they thought, well, we can use kids for this part of the program, but in the process, train them for service in adulthood to be the first generation of American chrononauts. And so they decided to put those two goals together and they they elected not to use kids. Although I must say, one time I was sent to this with one of the other children to this chronovized environment involving incredible drought conditions. And because we were stuck there in this super hot dry environment i don't know where it was in the country but it was almost to the point where we couldn't stand it in terms of the heat and the and the dryness and the dehydration of our our throat and so forth they did send a diminutive adult in this special suit uh so they were using both apparently
0: so that was important to bring that adult in to help you, was that, that that was what it was about?
1: They had to send him in yeah. to the environment we've been sent to in that hologram to pull us out. Huh. And so they were using diminutive adults as well.
0: What does that term mean, diminutive? I mean, in this particular context.
1: Uh, smaller. Uh, oh, okay. Smaller-sized adults. In other words, they were first thinking of using, let's say, midges, people with, uh, you know. Um.
0: Little people, they call them now.
1: Yeah, little, little people. <laughs> right. But then I thought, well, no, let's use kids, and that'll be one of the means by which we'll train them for service as chrononauts in, a, in adulthood.
0: Let's talk a little bit about time. What I And what I mean by time is, what was the time that a lot of this was happening? Maybe you could give us some ideas of the year. I should have said year. Well, I... I was first introduced to
1: some of the technologies in 1967, 68, but I was officially placed in DARPA's Project Pegasus in fall of 1969 when I just turned eight years old, and it lasted until the summer of 1972. You were pretty young. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: I had no idea. I thought you were a teenager, but you were you were. Uh,
1: uh, that, no, and often our service on Mars is also confused with that. But I entered Project Mars at 18 years of age. So for training. And then I when I first went to Mars <clears throat> on July 7th of 1981, I was two months shy of my twentieth birthday. So I was nineteen. So Project Pegasus involved 140 American school children who were roughly my age, they were either a few years older, born in the late 1950s, or they were born in 1960, 61, or 62. I think I was something like the second or third youngest, hmm. having been born in September of 1961.
0: How were you chosen for this?
1: We were chosen via Project Talent, not Talon, which is something that President uh, Trump initiated. Project Talon. Was a program initiated by Admiral Hyman Rickover, President Jimmy Carter's mentor in the Navy. Admiral Rickover was concerned that he was getting plebes for the US Naval Academy at Annapolis that would not be capable to be trained into nuclear submarine captains with his mentorship. So he started a program. And many of your listeners who are my age or older may remember this testing. I think Bruce, you were either a little bit too old or maybe you you also had this testing. It was a week of testing plus, you know, Monday through Friday plus the first half of a Saturday. Hmm. And at the end of this testing, you'd get this pen with like four different colors on it. Now, what they were looking for with the questions they were asking were young Americans of extraordinary intelligence quotient, you know, IQ, psychic ability, or leadership of potential. So I had been identified as a high scorer in Project Talent,
0: as had thousands of American children of our generation. Now, is that Talent, T-A-L-E-N-T? Yes. Okay.
1: Not to be confused with Project Talent or the... Right, okay. ...the
0: claw on a bird t-a-l-o-n so this is t-a-l-e-n-t now uh you were you you were in new jersey at this time is that correct
1: yes i had been born in morristown new jersey and i was growing up in morris plains and in, in a fairly idyllic town to grow up in america i feel quite quite lucky that i was blessed to be born into such a family and, and such a town it was a wonder we didn't even lock our doors at night <laughs> we sometimes left the door open yeah during the summer with the screen door on.
0: Right. Uh, before we keep going on this issue, I want to ask you this. Do Do you think that, um, or, or do you know, uh, that this was throughout the U.S.? I mean, could this possibly have only been in New Jersey, this particular project?
1: Well, well I know it wasn't, because when, for example, I would teleport to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and then be taken by bus as with the other kids over to lamy new mexico that's l-a-m-y the old school site which i think is now privately owned in lamy would be used to test us we would get like about two and a half hours of math and verbal testing none unlike the scholastic aptitude test and i knew from my contact with such children that they were talking about where they were from in the country. So that group of hundred and forty kids were from I know were from around the United States. Specifically, what states I don't remember, but I'm sure it was something like somebody would say mm-hmm. Maine, somebody right. else would say Maryland, mm-hmm. I would say New Jersey. So there were definitely kids from around the country that have been tapped by Project Talent who had then been spun off into service in Project Pegasus
0: so this project talent now that're we're, that we're talking about this they used the school systems or some other uh, way
1: well they yeah they used testing at the school level for Monday through Friday and the, and then a Saturday morning hmm. and then they would reward the kids with one of those pens with what it would have.
0: I wonder how like, they how they uh, explain red this thing in green ink yeah I'm saying I wonder how they would explain this thing to parents <laughs> I mean
1: that, well they would lie to the mothers I mean my mother was told that I was getting I was I was in part of some high IQ study by Harvard College uh-huh. inter young people they would not tell the mothers who usually were, were not employed or at, right. at least not employed in the what I call the defense technical community. My dad had been employed by the defense technical community since October of 1952, a couple months after that famous UFO flight above Washington DC. So this was a a critical function of the government. And um, I mean, I know I received, um, I, I received both the testing of Project Talent There was, what, the Stanford, Binet, and Otis Lemon IQ testing. There was the Iowa test of basic skills. This was an era in which how to make a a brighter group of adults was being actively pursued. In fact, at the Thomas Edison Research Labs, my dad had helped design some of the speed learning machines that we would use in Project Pegasus. That was described in a Harper's Magazine article that he left in his dresser for me. Uh, And I found after his death. So we have to remember that we were in a Cold War with the former Soviet Union. The number one concern of the U.S. military, especially like the second reserve of the U.S. Army that my dad was a major in, under the name of a friend of his who had died during World War II in the Pacific theater of the war, Henry Anthony Petrovsky of, of Summit Hill. So my dad was known as Major Henry Petrovsky of the second reserve of the U.S. Army. That was a cadre of everyday Americans, you know, school principals, engineers, um, sanitation workers, huh, uh, whoever, that would step up and become our, our, our military and our political leadership. If the number one military threat that the government was worried about happened, namely that we were invaded by the Soviet Army And our frontline military and and governmental leaders were captured or killed. There was a whole cadre of Americans that my dad described as a fifth column that would step up as the second reserve of the US Army. We once went up to Camp Kilmer in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and the guard saluted my father and stepped back and, and saluted him and said, you can proceed major. And I said, dad, that guy just called you major. I thought you were a private first class during World War II. And he said, I I was son. And he said, well, I'm in this thing called the Second Reserve. This is a fifth column of everyday Americans to step up and become our political and military leaders. If, for example, the Soviet Army invades America through like the Bering Passage and – we need to have leadership, and I'm I'm going to step up and do that.
0: It's interesting that you talk about this, even though it's kind of passing through the the uh, the subject matter. Because a lot of people my age remember a lot about the Cold War. It was very real then, and of course, the way you're talking, you can see how real this was, um, as opposed to let's say now where people feel relatively safe and they don't feel like anything is really going to ever happen. Is there anything like, or do you know whether there's anything like this going on now or? I I don't know. I haven't been briefed on that. I, I haven't been in touch with the government
1: since I left project Mars in 1984. And particularly 20 years later in 2004, when I started talking about what I did, that didn't exactly make me persona non grata with the military and the intel community. In fact, Individuals uh, kind of makes me have faith in my country when individuals from the intelligence community and the military have approached me and said, Andy, we really like what you've done. You know, you've told the people what this great country has achieved in terms of time travel and Mars visitation. And we really like that you're not cabining your talks or your TV or radio appearances by tearing down this country everybody in the CIA or the U S army or what have you can't be evil. And that's what we've been left with as a result of this or the post Vietnam complex that we've been in. So I've talked to a number of really high level military and Intel people about what I've been doing. And they've expressed their support for it, despite the fact that I was threatened not to go forward with this in 2003. But at the same time, I'm not, I'm not connected to the intel community or military in some kind of actual operational way. Let's um, just—I so I I must say—in regard to the question you just asked, right. that I did ask a general in the Air Force a few, a few months ago about my dad's service in the Second Reserve and whether the Second Reserve continued as an up, you know an operational program of our of our country and this particular general hung up the 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 line with me because he didn't want his answer to that question being recorded or heard by by another by another world power or faction of some kind so i would suspect based on that that he was trying to avoid saying yes we still have a second reserve which is i guess a good thing
0: so could uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to get too far away from the the, the coronavirus, but right. are we talking a little bit about a paramilitary that may exist on another level? Well, I, I don't know if it's fair to call it a paramilitary because that kind of suggests
1: almost like a group of independent insurrectionists. But there is an official cadre of ordinary Americans. I mean, your your neighborhood dentist, or policeman, or firefighter. Or a school teacher can literally have directions of where to report if there's a national emergency. And in fact, one time in my life, this did get invoked, and that was, of course, the Northridge earthquake.
0: Right. And people heard that announcement that, you know, those
1: who have been given an order of battle, you know, location to report to are now ordered to report to their to their uh, headquarters or something like that. So there have been national emergencies in the United States. I'm sure Hurricane Katrina probably is also one of them in which this second reserve of the US Army gets called up. So it's not really a paramilitary, it's sort of a replacement military if something takes
0: out our mainstream uh, military. Yeah, and I think it makes sense. but. Let's, I don't want to go too far in this because I promised that we were going to talk about the coronavirus. Um, it, but go ahead.
1: Bruce, you know, people of, of our generation, I understand you were born in 1947. I, of course, in 61. One thing that might jog the memories of baby boomers whose dads or even their moms were part of this is they had these little plastic, almost like Chinese fortune cookie type messages they were they were like a little plastic thing they'd often put it up on their dresser and they'd have to kind of like reach in there and get this little order of battle memo that was tucked inside this plastic container that's the best thing i can analogize to would be a chinese fortune many of our parents had those so there was a third because of the threat of nuclear war because of the threat of a russian army invasion because they knew there had been serious earthquakes and fires and um, typhoons, there was a thoroughgoing second military in this country. It wasn't just some small program for engineers like my dad who were working in the defense technical community. I mean, many elderly firefighters of the present, you know, an 85-year-old firefighter that you might meet
0: was probably or at least there's a good chance had known people who were in the second reserve very interesting
1: yeah Um, i don't think i've written a book about it but i think maybe it would be an interesting (laughs) study yeah of, of, of the cold war
0: well i i think that again as i said before and i don't want to keep this going too long but it is important and that is that um people or let's put it this way it seems like the overall majority of people do not think about this. There's always a small, smaller group, of course, that we would call, you know, maybe super patriots or whatever. And there's been a a, a, a real uh, strange—I I, I, want to under, underline the word strange—way that media has looked. At these people. Sometimes they're called patriots. Sometimes they're called terrorists. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I don't have to go through the, the names of all the different possibilities uh, as far as media is concerned. But the point I think is that there has always been, or sh- probably has always been, a group of people who are somehow involved with the government, maybe not capital G government. But a government agency that is there in case something, well, for example, let's maybe just talk about the idea of the Twin Towers going down. That was a tremendous change at that moment. People no longer felt safe. You could see it everywhere.
1: Absolutely. And those are the kind of um, catastrophic events for which the second reserve was designed. Now, you know, my dad was a just salt of the earth Pennsylvanian. He was the son of Polish coal miners in the small town of Summit Hill, Pennsylvania. I was his fifth child. And I think it's interesting that at 19, he was going to France and Germany to fight World War II. And as a result of his involvement with the defense technical community, I ended up spending my 19th year on the red planet. So I have no qualm about uh, talking about our work for these secret military cadres because they weren't some unauthorized extension of what America was supposed to be about. They were literally a fundamentally American enterprise. Just like baseball or selecting a president Mm -hmm. or apple pie. You know, these were people from all over the country. If you have an elderly dentist, why don't you ask him? hey, were you ever in the second reserve? And I'm, I'm sure that some people will find to their amazement that some elderly gentleman next door involved in some profession was actually going to be called up in the event of some kind of national disaster or military insurrection of some kind, military invasion, if you will, of some kind. So I think it probably still exists, but I have no proof that it does if so, it doesn't, it should be
0: re <laughs> Revisited, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's come back to the chronovisor. So okay. one of the things that, that I think people are, very, are always interested in, and I think it might be a good time to just review how that thing came about.
1: Right. This is a little bit um, duplicative of what we talked about in the last show, but I think it's worth doing so. There were two Vatican musicologists, Pellegrino, Ernetti, and Augustino, also known as Pierre Maria Gemelli. They were very distinguished Vatican prelates. In fact, the, the second largest Vatican hospital in Rome, the very hospital that Pope Paul II, Carol Wotia, was convalescing at before his death was Gemelli Hospital in Rome. That had been named for Father Augustino Gemelli. Now, in the 1940s, at the Catholic University of Milan in Italy, they were studying the harmonic patterns of Gregorian chants and had designed a specialized microphone to split the signals of the voices to explore questions of why do Gregorian chants have such healing Qualities, such calming propensities. And to their shock and amazement, something that Gimeli's father had said to him in childhood when he spoke of young Gimeli as my little zucchini literally came through the microphone. And Ernetti and Gimeli looked at each other and said, my God, we have a window to the past. We've got to bring this to the attention of the leading physicists in the world. And they did. And and that, of course, was Enrico Fermi. So that by 1952, Ernetti and Fermi had something like a television screen where you could see something in the past going on. And then, of course, it was just a TV screen. It was not a hologram. So the Vatican which I found out from my dad actually commissions a lot of state sort of technical research functions, gave chronovision, il visor, as they would say in Italian, to the United States. It was given to the Navy because the Navy originally had ambit over the physical horizon on the oceans on a planet, what 71% covered by ocean. And Then the Navy decided to give it to DARPA when DARPA was still ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency. But It would later become the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. In fact, it was still ARPA when I was told about what I'd be doing in Project Pegasus when I was in the first grade, which was like 1967, 68, somewhere around there. And um, then DARPA gave the television screen chronovisor to Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, which was about 15 minutes from my home in Morris Plains in my birthplace in Morristown. And I know that this Vatican provenance of chronovision is true and accurate to a, to a historical certainty. Because one time when I was at the chronovisor array in what would become the Morristown, New Jersey, Performing Arts Center. One of the technicians on the project said, Andy, that that Catholic priest in the back of the room is Father Er, Ernetti, Father Pellegrino Ernetti. I just what you wanted to see that so you could make note of that. They were actually always helping me to remember stuff, and that's why I developed such a memory. But I was getting a number of different health inputs like i would get gamma globulin shots and gamma radiation and vanadium shots so somehow it ended up with a superb memory but i just want to confirm that it's when france father francois brunet did that famous article in an italian newspaper about ernetti gemelli and the derivation of the chronovisor that was historically accurate information there was no project looking glass that led to the derivation of CoronaVision. It was Ernetti and Gimelli. They were distinguished Catholic priests, distinguished musicologists, and distinguished technologists, and they were responsible. And I, by the way, my name is Polish, not Italian. <laughs> In fact, I had my genes checked and I don't have any Italian. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not being an Italian partisan saying that, but no. we have to remember that Italy was where the Renaissance was, okay? Um, you know, Da Vinci and Michelangelo and so forth. So it continued to lead to very advanced technologies in the modern era. And um, that was the derivation of ChronoVision. They then, when they gave the uh, flat-screen TV, screen-type ChronoVisor to Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, Bell Labs working with bismuth crystal work that my dad and physicists like leo asaki had been working on going back to the early 60s developed a chronovisor that was a cube of light it was a hologram then they found that when you stood inside that hologram right when it was propagated you went to that time and place and yes i traveled in time a number of ways, one of them was the chronovisor.
0: Now, maybe we could take a moment and kind of like go into, you, you always talk about the uh, eight, um, I should call them modalities, the, the modalities or the types. Could we go through all eight of them? Is that Would that be worthwhile or do you think it's going too far away from the? No, no. We
1: were, well, first remote viewing. It was the first, and then spinning to induce antibody experiences.
0: Now, that and, I want you to stop for a second. On that one spinning, it, it, in other words, you get yourself dizzy or become dizzy, is that correct?
1: Well, if you're spun on a tabletop-like device Oh, okay. all right, With kind of like a twilight zone spiral above you on the ceiling. And, of course, the poster that did that was quite old, so they must have been doing this for many years. Mm-hmm. Um... You go out of body. So I certainly would advise people at home not to try that. (laughs) (laughs) As long as your head was in the center and your feet on the outside of the circle.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: That was a kind of sort of astral time travel. You would go out of body.
0: Okay. So that's Um, number one and number two. Yeah. And then number three was the Montauk chair. The Montauk chair. Was one of the only US time travel devices reverse engineered from alien technology. What it was was the chair that the pilot of an alien
1: craft would use to avoid colliding in something in, in space space dust, space junk, a planet, a planetoid, an asteroid, hmm. another, another craft. And, and so they took that and they realized, well, wait a minute. These extraterrestrials are not crashing into anything out in space because they have this chair that they're sitting in. Why don't we take this and see what we can get humans to do? And they found that when they used psychically gifted humans, the Montauk chair would take people not to avoid crashing into things in space because they weren't flying through space. They were flying through time spaces, so people would have like 15 to 20 minute episodes of their own subjective future. But we found when we were working with the Montauk chair, that that was not predictive of the future. It was predictive of a possible future.
0: Right. So it was basically working within the framework of the timelines.
1: Yeah. What was ultimately discovered by my dad, a big discussion between him and his old time friend, Maria Cantancia Chavez, Connie Chavez, also known as Pilly Chavez, who was kind of a support person for the project, that they had essentially proven that every decision is a tripartite decision. Something to think about. So let's say somebody's thinking about going to college. I wanted to, Because I was from New Jersey, I wanted to get into Princeton. That was really what I was, what I was gunning for, even though virtually everybody in my California high school, Chatsworth High School in Chatsworth, California, wanted to get into Stanford, right? That was the preeminent university in the state, still is, or Berkeley or UCLA, but, but really Stanford was numero uno, right? But I wanted to get into Princeton and go back to New Jersey, run for Congress and have a political career in New Jersey. That was my goal. Um, but, um, that did not happen. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, I got my second best choice, which was the university of California. My first year in school was spent at UC San Diego, then UCLA. Okay. So what, what else could I have done with that tripartite decision of the idea of getting a college education? I could have not gone to college. I could have entered the Navy or worked for Exxon or, you know, as a garbage man or been an artist or a writer or whatever, right? I didn't need to go to college. And if you think about any decision or choice in your life, it always is a tripart choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is the girl that you want to take to the high school prom going to be your first choice? A. Uh, a runner up, you know, when when that girl says, no, I'm going to the prom with Billy. Okay. So you ask another girl or you don't go to the prom, right? So it's always choice A, B, or zero. That's what they found with the Montauk chair, the third form of time trap. I know that they were wrong because some of the things that I saw in the Montauk chair have happened. And I've had these huge bursts of this deja vu-like awareness. My God, this is what's happening. This is what I saw. I know, for example, when I traveled to Argentina and spoke about my Mars experiences before the Centro Informacion de Ovni of Campella del Monte, Argentina, that I had been in Argentina in the Montauk chair as a kid. And it was a very epochal kind of thrilling trip for me. It was just such a sort of an adventurous trip but I also know that there were there were people and events well also I, I remember coming up with the the name the ethnicity and the appearance of some of my siblings spouses that seemed to be like an important growth in my family whom my older siblings married and I certainly made note of that but I also saw that in the Montauk chair I even Came up with the name of one of my sister-in-laws, her birth name. But that was not always correct. So in other words, they were finding, well, what is, what are these other data points? The other data points are, are when a different decision is made in this kind of tripartite fractal pattern of reality. Hmm. So, um, so then we also did, um, Tesla
0: teleportation. That was number four, and then ChronoVision was five. Okay, now, we, let's do the Tesla teleportation, or just a little bit more of an, an explanation, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, that was a a device that was left back in Nikola, papers Tes, no, Nikola Tesla's papers when he died on January 9th of 1943, it's rumored that President Trump's uncle, John G. Trump, was working for the FBI or the Defense Department and beat one of the other departments to it and actually came into that paper. I don't know if that's true. Uh, John G. Trump may have been on Project Pegasus, but I, I can't confirm that. But they got hold of Tesla's paperwork, and one of the, one of the papers read Energetic Array. And when they set up that machine at Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey, a technician walked through the field of light that this energetic array propagated when the machine was running. And to his astonishment, he tumbled to Africa and it took him something like six weeks or six months to get home because the Africans were sort of venerating him as a God who had suddenly appeared among them. In fact, when he walked into his supervisor's lab, back at Curtis Wright, aeronautical company facility in Woodridge, New Jersey, his supervisor collapsed. Because look at it from his perspective. He thought his colleague had been disintegrated through this device. Hmm. He didn't realize he had been sent somewhere. So they then used a group of Navy personnel. Is this a teleporter? If this guy could tumble to Africa, this guy, Curtis Wright, um, then what is it? What can it do? And they began using Navy enlisted personnel. But the tunnel, the vortal tunnel that that teleporter opened up was so long that those Navy personnel died. They asphyxiated from lack of oxygen. By the time I was brought in, first a group of foreign national children had brought, been brought in where they would take really deprived kids from poor countries around the world. And they would use them in defense experiments. And if they lived, or at least lived uninjured, they would get everything in America that they would not be they would be deprived of back in their home countries. Parents, enough food to eat, clothes to wear, you know, schooling to receive and so forth.
0: Sounds so our- it sounds illegal, you know. I mean <laughs> No, that was I think rather exploitative of foreign national children. Yeah, I'm just saying. Um, I know what
1: some of those countries are, but I don't want to yeah. potentially humiliate the people of those countries because all the people around the world are great. We've got to be aware of that. Um, they're all our brothers and sisters. But it was really to saying to these the governments of these poor countries, look, give us your kids to experiment with, and we'll give them everything that they deserve should they live uninjured. Of course, some would be killed, some would be crippled. Ugh. and you know wounded by the experiment but i just make that point to say i wasn't in the first group of children to tesla teleport i was the in the first i was the the first teleportee among american children to teleport and that was confirmed before i was even really investigating what i did in project pegasus is this the
0: is this the same technology that was used in the philadelphia experiment
1: Yes, the Philadelphia experiment was into Tesla teleportation, but all the specific facts that were given to us in the Philadelphia experiment were were altered to delink and disinform the people of the world hmm. uh, and the governments of the world. The critical linkage between Tesla teleportation and the Los Alamos physicists that my father and I were working with in Project Pegasus, like Dr. Harold Agnew, Dr. Edward Teller, Sterling Colgate, and so forth. So, yes, but the Philadelphia Experiment, sort of in the MK Jessup sort of model of it, is simply a cover story.
0: That sounds like another show. (laughs) Wow.
1: Yes, have had it. I think that'll be an interesting show
0: all right so um i know we went off a little bit there's a couple more left okay which okay so that was the uh, tesla teleportation so
1: so let me describe the tesla teleporter basically you had these two elliptical booms or armatures about i don't know about eight feet high and shaped like elephant tusks about 10 feet apart on the floor of actually initially Sixty or um, yeah, you know, building in, in uh, at Curtis Wright in, in, in Woodridge, and between the two booms, you'd see this this cascading light. It sort of looked like water falling on one of those beautiful public water sculptures, like down in Austin, Texas, hmm. and and then between the booms, from left to right and right to left. At three-inch intervals, there was this bluish-white squiggle of light. My dad explained that on the count of three, we were going to jump through that light and enter a kind of a tunnel. And then he might be separated for me in that tunnel or from, from me. But then we would show up somewhere else in the country. So what we did is we counted to three, and we leapt through the um, the armatures of the teleporter as father and son, that was depicted in Fringe when Walter Bishop jumps through the teleporter with with his son. That was taken from my account. They even used my cousin Walter's name, one of my dad's nephews, for my dad's name. it wasn't Bashago, it was Bishop. So much to my dismay, when I presented my life experiences to ABC Disney in January of 2008, a lot of it ended up in the TV show French. That's life in America, where you can time travel to <laughs> the country and then be ripped off in the production of a popular television show. Right. Uh, but, so anyway, uh, Walter Bishop jumped, just walks through the teleporter. That we could not do. We had to leap through the teleporter, or we would be dismembered. Hmm. We had to leap through at a meter per second, or we would lose – an arm, a leg, or be cut in half. Wow. So I think French got that a little bit wrong.
0: I don't think I would. Have, I don't think <laughs> I would have ever tried that. Or did you not we know? They
1: had to leap through that. <laughs> My dad explained that we're some are going to have to leap through this field of light here, or we may be killed. And they knew that because there had been Navy personnel who had been killed. They had been dismembered, or they asphyxiated without enough oxygen during the long time they were in the tunnel. But anyway, it worked. We got in the tunnel and it was like a big holographic bluish white. Oblate oblately triangular field of light. Like it was a tunnel, but it wasn't a circular tunnel. It was like a, an oblate triangular tunnel. I guess that relates to Nicola Tesla's famous statement that it all matters you know, what matters in the universe is three, six, or N9. There was some right. kind of triangular
2: mm-hmm.
1: nature to the nature of time space. And that may also explain the tripartite outcomes of the Montauk chair. But so we'd be in this tunnel for was was really only seconds. It seemed like 15 seconds, but I later was told, no, Andy, that's a, a time space um, sensation. That's not accurate. Mm-hmm. That's a uh, time dilation. That's not true. You're only in there for a couple seconds. And then we would pop out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, Santa Fe, very lovely city, nice people, is 2,005 miles from Woodward, New Jersey. So if anybody has ever driven across the country, as I have twice, <laughs> first with my family when I moved to California in right. 1972, huh. and then by myself uh, in 2015 when I was bringing my car from uh, vancouver washington to my campaign uh, headquarters in charlotte north carolina mm-hmm. this is a vast country it goes on and on and on so imagine crossing it all 2005 miles it was from woodward new jersey to santa fe new mexico not even to california a distance of 2005 miles literally in several seconds that's what we were doing in project pegasus by let's say originally 1967 68 but then as a group of kids by summer of 1970 so we knew we were doing something special you know if any of us had driven from i don't know you know Princeton New Jersey to Harrisburg Pennsylvania we knew that this this device was doing something incredible right and that <laughs>
0: that course, could take <laughs> that could have taken 6 hours <laughs>
1: Yeah, even you're not. Yeah, you're going to get from what? From I don't know Gary, Indiana to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio in six or seven hours, right? You're not. You, you just if you knew driving between states, you knew it was just impossible to get across the country like this, or almost all the way across the country, right? In such a in such a short period of time. But so we knew something was going on was special. But that, of course, that's what I'd like to see implemented would be teleportation in real time. But then as they began to experiment with this Tesla teleporter, which they changed the name of from Energetic Array to Tesla Energetic Array, which was the inspiration for the Tesseract in Madame Engel's book, A Wrinkle in Time. Remember that?
0: I only remember the title. I I didn't read it.
1: Well, that was short for Tesla Energetic Array. Ah. That's what we were working with in Project Pegasus. It was a real program.
2: That they had spun off with you—you you guessed it—science fiction, mm.
1: science fiction for children. And so, what they started thinking: Well, wait a minute. If we're just bringing people through the the vortal, these vortal tunnels, in what they call the quantum plenum, what if we adjust the device? Won't they get there in what's called the past or the future? And they did. They found that they could adjust the. Device somehow. I mean, I'm not a physician or an engineer like my dad, not a physicist, rather, or an engineer like my dad or a mathematician. I'm just a writer and a lawyer and a time traveler. But they were somehow adjusting the Tesla teleporter so that you would arrive, the teleportee would arrive in the past or future. That's how I was sent in 1970 to August of 1776 to literally meet and brief General George Washington, which I did. which i will spend the rest of my life in this life giving bearing witness to because it's a true story the father of our country george washington was a remarkable human being being to me he was resolute courageous decisive he was just a remarkable human being and i could tell he just had a, a a demeanor that was that would produce confidence I can I can see why our nation's capital was named Washington for, but I basically was sent there because when they were using um, Chronovision to see what the past held, whether it really matched what history held, one of the people they were studying was Washington's lies. But to their amazement, guess what? They saw Ray's son Andy briefing Washington. Mm-hmm. So they recorded. What I said to Washington after being chronovized to Brooklyn Heights and meeting with him and then had me brief him, and the very demarche that I had been recorded giving Washington, I gave Washington. So I'm bringing that up at ChronoVision again because teleporting with a kind of a chronovized outcome like that was no less frequent in the program. We were either jumping through a Tesla teleporter and arriving in real time very quickly, or we were literally arriving in another time in the past or future. In fact, I was in the first chronovisor probe to the future, which was on November 5th of 1971 at ITT Defense Communications Mm -hmm. and Nutley Pictures. But also, even just in the trips to New Mexico, we began arriving in the future. So, for example, in Fall of 1971, my dad and I went up to Curtis Wright, and I thought we were just jumping to New Mexico again. And yes, we did arrive in Santa Fe, but it was the summer of 1973. Now, I wouldn't experience the second summer until we moved to California in November of 72. I spent my first endless summer in California, going to the beach and jumping in and out of swimming pools. So... I'm just emphasizing that like the, the chronovisor, the teleporter was initially a a travel device, but it became a time travel device
0: because they learned how to set it so that you arrived in what we call the past or future. So, uh, I think there are two more of these. Is that correct? Well, let's let's see, I'm up to six or seven. I think there's a, oh. there was
1: the, um, the, uh, plasma confinement chamber, it was like a big, <clears throat> not really cube of, of, of lucite, but imagine you put a big rectangular square or, rec, you know, a rectangular, uh, not cube, but containment vessel of lucite, some high-grade plastic, mm-hmm. over half the side of a tennis court, so it was, let's say, 12 to 14 feet high and the width of half the tennis court of a um, regulation tennis court. If we walked inside that and down to the plasma swirling at the end of that, we would have like a trapdoor sensation and just collapse and go into the past. We'd have like um, 30 seconds of this this crazy vortal tunnel type experience, kind of like what the bleep do we know? Mm -hmm. Remember that 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 sort of swirling vortal tunnel in what the bleep do we know? It looked very much like that. That was really the only chaotic time of space effect that I had in life. Mm. Um, And, you you know, you'd you'd walk into the plasma and you would just feel like a trap door had been opened up beneath you. That's how, for example, my dad and Dr. Sterling Colgate sent me to um, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in spring of 1972, but in in the time that I was reaching, November 19th of 1863, so I could have the treat of watching President Lincoln give the Gettysburg Address, which I was then photographed in the, in the, in the so-called uh, Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg. Josephine Cobb was the photo analyst who um found lincoln's picture on the dais at the far back of that photograph right over my shoulder why because i and lincoln were in the same place in time space on november 19th of 1863 that is me and in fact two dedicated photo analysts one of them a descendant of josephine cobb william brett stillings His mother being uh, Gail Cobb Stillings of the Senate. He he was the great nephew of Josephine Cobb. John Gannon was just a spirited photo analyst. What they found is that everything I said about that trip to Gettysburg was proven in the photograph. For example, my eye socket and my cheekbone are visible. because Why? Because I was fading from view when the photograph was taken. So that was one of the only plasma confinement domes, I, you know, chambers I was ever in.
0: Now I've I've looked at that picture, and I don't recall seeing that. But I must say, I'm not looking at a photograph; I'm looking at a digitization of it. So it could be that it just doesn't show that.
1: But well, they they enlarged and did special photo analytical techniques. Mm-hmm to really study the photograph on almost a microscopic level. And when you blow up the photograph, you can see what they're talking about in civil war photos. There were often blurring effects. Like somebody would be walking. Mm-hmm. And so you see their body. You'd see like this snake of light, right? Like the Tremalfadorians and that Kurt Vonnegut story, you know, like that we're all ultimately snakes of light that if you follow everybody as they're walking through life. Right. Mm. But they enlarged that photograph and zoomed into it, and they found that, wait a minute, it's not a known Civil War photo defect to be able to see the the eye socket or the cheekbone of the person featured. And I had said that I was fading from view right when they took that picture. It was either
0: uh, uh, Matthew Brady or his assistant, who I believe his name was George Backrack. Very much like Bert back then, <laughs> late great composer. Composer just passed away. Well, this I I, uh, in looking at that picture, I noticed that it looked like you had on either clogs or, or some kind of strange-looking uh, uh, sneakers or something.
1: Well, I had, I had um, civilian street shoes that John Lawrence Byrne had given me at the millinery shop in Gettysburg that I stopped at. Hmm. And it, they were more sort of like boot like uh, shoes. But I was wearing a Union Bugle Boy um, outfit that the dresser at at the particular time lab that I was in in East
0: Hanover, New Jersey, equipped me with. I was dressed as a Union Bugle Boy, but not given a a trumpet because I, I played out those sacks, not trumpet. <laughs> but what they're I'm trying not, to do is have trumpet. you, they want you to fit in, right?
1: <laughs> and my brilliant nephew played actually trumpet i think in the um, macy's uh, thanksgiving day parade but i they didn't want me holding a saxophone well, in course the plasma <laughs> confinement chamber or trying to play the trumpet because I, I did not yeah. play the bugle but i was dressed as a union bugle boy so like a really snapping brand new uniform huh. and but the problem was my hat both of my shoes and one of my socks got ripped off in the plasma confinement chamber so as I walked into Gettysburg, not even believing that this was a town, the town of Gettysburg was like a couple stores at the time of the Civil War. If you think this country has grown up, think about that. You know, go to Gettysburg today and look around and think that, well, wait a minute. When Lincoln and, and, and Boshago were here on November 19th of 1863, this very street here was like a couple of shops but the millinery shop that I went into, and Mister Burns took me inside into and equipped me with adequate clothing. He said, "Come on, boy, Let me take you in the shop here. I'll get you a jacket. I'll get you a cap, mm. so you don't catch your grip." But if I leave you out here, son, you're just going to catch your, your grip. That's mm. apparently what they called a cold from from the cold. Mm. Your grip. But uh, I actually visited that in 150 years later, in 2013. I went to Gettysburg. And the very millinery shop that I went into to be equipped with that clothing is still there. Hmm. Selling like novelty T-shirts. that Oh, I, I visited Gettysburg. <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> <Bet> you'd have <laughs> one that says, I stood with Andrew Pajago. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: Yeah. laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So if you're going to Gettysburg, check that out. That that I guess it's what, Ehrenberg Road, sort of upper Emmitsburg Pike, you make a left at Tommy's pizza and you go up towards the millinery shop there, the men's shop. Hmm. It's now more like a souvenir clothing shop, but it's still there. Even the disequilibrium between the one level of the floor and another level of the floor is still there. There's a defect in the floor. Um, but a woman came in and had an argument with Mr. Burns. You know, I I, I couldn't hear it because time space was speeding up and slowing down and i've now identified that woman as eliza ann bowen she was the wife who owned that shop well she she administered that shop with her husband david Kendallhart, who was also known as david bowen for some reason even though that was her last name eliza ann bowen i was so moved by that fact when i realized that the area in the back of the shop that John Lawrence Burns, I, well, I first learned that Burns was a hero of Gettysburg and the War of 1812. This very gentleman who volunteered to equip me with clothing after I arrived uh, in Gettysburg from 1972 <laughs> with my teeth chattering from the cold. I also found out that the Kendall hearts were running the Gettysburg branch of the Underground Railroad. And when I thought of all those brilliant black Americans who were able to be our great American talents that they've become, singers and musicians and scientists and educators and poets, Langston Hughes and Duke Ellington and Martin Luther King, I got so moved up about the fact that the clothing for fugitive slaves that the Kendall Hearts were keeping at the back of that millinery shop was being given to me, some referring time traveler from 1972, that I actually put a rose on uh, Eliza Ann Bowen's grave right, right there in Gettysburg. Uh, but I think we should think about that. You know, we often like to, you know, repeat commonly restated uh, affirmations against the Black American community. Oh, there's more Black males in prison than in college. Why don't we say, is Duke Ellington not the greatest American composer of the twentieth century?
0: Sure, it's just yeah, it's just you know, the idea decided. of focusing on another aspect.
1: Yeah, focus on what's real. And when I focused on what was real, and that is as a time travel from Mars Plains, New Jersey from 1972, I had been given the clothing intended for Martin Luther King, Duke Ellington, and Langston Hughes's, you know, ancestors. Hmm. At the Gettysburg um, branch of the Underground Railroad, I got very moved. I actually wept, hmm. and therefore, I you know I brought a, a rose there in Gettysburg and put it on Eliza Ann Bowen's uh, gravestone because she was chewing John Lawrence Burns out for for giving me that clothing. <laughs> I couldn't hear what she was saying, like I said, because of the time space. <laughs> Huh. effects i was getting i was getting like everything was speeding up and slowing down so i could hear what they were saying it was some kind of effect of the machine or something I don't, I don't know the plasma confinement chamber but i'm sure that she was saying she must have been saying something like john now don't be giving uh this clothing to any wayfaring uh bugle boy who wanders into into town from the battle these this clothing is intended for our fugitive slaves I'm almost sure that's that's what it was because the Kindle Hearts were devoted abolitionists who were running the the Gettysburg, you know, depot of the Underground Railroad, right there. that the clothing for the fugitive slaves that were coming north to freedom was the stack of clothing that that John Lawrence Burns got that clothing for me. So that was the plasma confinement chamber. And then, of course, there was the aeronautical repositioning chamber that we used to get to Mars. Hmm. That initially was just getting paperwork and stuff from like Washington, D.C. to Santa Fe or Albuquerque. In other words, I believe that the the arc, the aeronautical repositioning chamber, jump room, or um, space elevator that Howard Hughes was getting uh, us to Mars with began as a, just a, a quick way within the defense technical community to get paperwork and briefing papers and stuff across the country faster than a plane plane could take it. So those are basically the seven or eight uh, modalities of time travel.
0: Okay, so we're basically out of time, but I'm not gonna leave everybody yet. Okay. With what you've told us about the chronovisor, is there anything that you feel you need to make sure we get in this program today?
1: Well, yeah, I, yeah, Bruce, I, I really think that it's important to kind of focus on the chronovisor. When they sent me to Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C., April 14th, 1865, in the summer of 1971, So they sent me there before they sent me to Gettysburg, 1863, from 1972. Okay, so the first trip I had to Lincoln, Lincoln's time, was to see who shot Lincoln. I did see the Lincolns in two of those four uh, time-space travels via chronovision. Once, first Mrs. and then, then President Lincoln coming into the lobby of Ford's Theater, the second time sitting up on the balcony seating. Um, but it's important to note that chronovision and the advent of it proved Henry James' theory of the multiverse. James first spoke of the multiverse like in the 1870s or 80s. And every time I was sent to Ford's theater, it changed a little bit. In fact, time travel to the past involving American school children and involving chronovision was shut down at the Sandia auditorium sometime in 1971, 72 I was at that meeting because every time they sent the same child or another child to the same past event, it changed a little bit. So project Pegasus proved the multiverse. I don't think that's a proof against God. I think it's a proof of God because of scripture, of course, states that with God, all things are possible. Mm-hmm. Is that not, in fact, established by the fact that you can be sent to any event in history and it changes a little bit? That must mean that as it's forming within the mind of God, the spirit, the imagination of God, everything is possible. <laughs> You know, in other words, a Ford's Theater, April 14th, 1865, that in which President Lincoln doesn't get shot, uh, doesn't happen as well as happens. So I've had, you know, religionists tell me, well, Andy, that can't be true because I don't believe in a God of chaos because with God, all things are possible. And they're kind of missing the implications of what I'm saying. If God can imagine... Multiple versions of our own life or our own, our own home time and hometown at the same time. God must be one heck of an imagineer. Look at the fact that when I teleported home to uh, Curtis Wright one time when I was on Pegasus, I walked home after the bus dropped me off at my school, Mount View Road School, and a different family was living where my family lived. That must mean that the universe is pretty big. It's pretty mul- mul- multiplicitous. So I, I think I'd be remiss in not saying that that's one thing that is the imp- implication of the Chronovisor, of Chronovision. It's not only a looking glass, as it has been sort of bastardized by various people, it was a, a time travel machine. And yet, in the very exploration of the multiverse or of time-space, the quantum hologram, hologram, if you will, it proved, it proved that the, that the quantum hologram is multidimensional. So in fact, if, if somebody is down on their luck or they're, they're depressed about their life, they have to realize that they don't know what's right around the corner. So, um, I think that to the extent that the multiverse was proven by, um, by Project Pegasus, that should be a grounds for hope that, um, there is, there are more things in this universe than we yet know of. And there's more to do and to learn and, and to experience than we have yet experienced. I know there are people who are thinking that. There's going to be some kind of ascension event in which, let's say, human health or spiritual quality or morality will get a lot better. And that's I think that's entirely possible, because what if there's something that influences the people of the world to just suddenly believe in a better world? What if we did that as, a, as an experiment among all human beings on Earth? Remember how Uri Geller was going to have everybody think about nuclear weapons and go break, break, break? And Uri got kicked off of American television as a result. Let's have everybody on Earth think about a world of love and peace and order and positive growth and think in a a spiritually positive way. Maybe the, the, the net effect of all those human beings thinking that will cause such a world to emerge. That, I think, is something I'd be remiss in not discussing the implications of chronovision. It's a multiplicitous universe. You know, we were told by our our space physics classes in high school that it was just one universe. It's not. It's a multiverse, what Weber calls the omniverse. But let's think about it in positive terms of... A, a better reality. Um, I think we've been through a lot of negative things as a country. And I think that that'll also help us just as a, as the American people to really ponder, wait a minute. If every time they sent Andy to Ford's theater to see who shot Lincoln, it changed a little bit. That means that things could change overnight for the better. And uh, I believe that's so.
0: For the rest of you, let me say this. I want to thank you for listening to Timeless Voyager. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.